So welcome to the Telescope Podcast. I'm news editor Henry Hepburn. With me is reporter Emma Seath. Hi Emma. Hello. Our guest today is Vineet Lal. Vineet is a literary translator, but he's also the son of Saroj Lal, a true trailblazer in Scottish education. Saroj sadly died in March 2020, but only after an absolutely remarkable career. Perhaps most notably, in 1970, she became one of the first ever BAME school teachers, perhaps even the first in Scotland's capital, Edinburgh. Vineet is here today to talk about her life and legacy. Vineet, welcome. Good morning. Lovely to meet you both. Vineet, you wrote an essay for us in August last year that marked almost exactly 50 years since your mum started as a teacher in South Morningside Primary School in Edinburgh. You began that by writing over her background up to that point. Can you tell us a little bit about her life up to 1970? Of course. So my mum, Saroj, was um, born in 1937 um, um, in in what was then British India before it was divided um, in the the partition of 1947. And she grew up very much influenced, I think, by her father. So my grandfather was uh, a very prominent figure in the struggle for independence from British rule. Um, he was a leading member of the Congress party in the in the part of British India where my mum was born, uh, which is now part of Pakistan. And I think his, his example of someone who was struggling for equality and justice probably had a huge influence her as, on, on her as she, as she grew up. She, um, she then, along with her family, moved across the border when partition took place and grew up in Punjab, the the Indian side of of Punjab. She went to university in uh, a place called Chandigarh, which is the capital of the state of Punjab. She studied economics and um, she married my my dad uh, in 1962. And soon after they they moved, they moved twice um, immediately after the marriage, first to the south of India, uh, to Madras, now Chennai, and then to Singapore where I arrived. On, on the scene. And I think Singapore, along with her experience of growing up in British India and the struggle for independence, was quite a seminal influence on her. Singapore was the first time, firstly, that she'd lived outside of India. And secondly, Singapore was one of those early examples, I think, globally of, of, a, of a well-harmonized multiracial society where you had quite different races living together, but in unity and and with, with one kind of common um, vision of, of, of a nation state. And I think, I think that probably um, um, left quite a mark on her, the fact that you had a Chinese community, you had a Malay community, and you had uh, an Indian Tamil-speaking community all living um, together. Um, after Singapore, because my dad was was teaching there, they they um, they migrated um, to the UK, where my dad was continuing his studies um, in Birmingham. So our first port of of call in the UK wasn't Scotland at all; it was it was England. And um, she's often well. Both my mum and my dad have told us have told us about their they had a holiday trip to Scotland while they were living in Birmingham, um, not thinking that they would ever <clears throat> settle here and. Um, my mum said to my dad when they came to Edinburgh, this is such a wonderful place. I, w- I would just love to live here. It's so beautiful. And um, when they got back to, to Birmingham, there was a letter waiting for my dad, which was a letter of appointment from what was then called Napier College of Science and Technology in Edinburgh, inviting him to take up the post of, of lecturer here in Edinburgh. So it's 
a strange twist of fate and coincidence that what my mum wanted to happen kind kind of did happen. So so that's how we ended up uh, in Scotland in Edinburgh in uh, around about 1968 69. That that's that's the journey. Okay, you you obviously you also wrote about uh, you you also wrote for us about how daunting it was to be a school's first ever BAME teacher in the 1970s. So could you just fill us in a little about the context your mum found herself in? Yes, I think I, th- I think that context is is quite important to to perhaps expand on in 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 this day and age because in in the late sixties, um, early seventies, we are looking at if not quite the first wave of immigration, one of the very early waves of immigration from from South Asia, um, and at that time, there were several factors in play. The Firstly, the the numbers, the absolute numbers of of non-white faces on the streets of somewhere like Edinburgh was 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 really low. So there were there weren't many people of of color uh, around you, just generally in in, in the populace. Um, and then alongside that, of course, perhaps as a result of that, or um, just due to you know other factors, um, it wasn't as if you know the you were always guaranteed a warm welcome when you arrived uh, as an immigrant, um, and I think though that that kind of combination of of isolation, i.e., being one of a very small community, but also the feeling of having to win acceptance and counteract some of the issues that have persisted, you know, in terms of discrimination and and prejudice, all of those things make life, I think, very difficult when you are. You know, very far away from where you from where you grew up and, and what you're accustomed to. That's true of the immigrate the, the people who immigrate who immigrate, but also of course true of, of, of their children too, or having to grow up in, in that same kind of, of, of context. Um, and I think all of that made life quite challenging both for, for both of my parents, my dad who, as I've said, was was taking a proposed as a lecture, but also for my mum in in forging some kind of career, you know, so far away from from where she grew up and where, and where she was accustomed to to the local culture, um, and then of course there's the economic issue because in those days it was yeah let's be honest it was hard to make ends meet and our first home in Edinburgh was and I'm using the word literally in the proper sense here because it's much overused but it was literally one room it was literally one room where I I around about the ages. Of five, six, kind of, those are my earliest memories. Very happy memories, I have to say, um, but coloured by the fact that I was very aware that we didn't have a lot, you know, we, we you know, we had very few possessions and it was, it was tough. And then my sister arrived in, in 1969. So you can imagine for a single, you know, for, um, for, for a family where um, uh, the father's working and, and then for my mum to have to cope with all of that, it was quite difficult. So it was, you know, when you say it must have been quite the contrast. I think you said in your piece that it's quite the contrast with Singapore as well, because you, you know, I suppose you were living in a multi, a very multicultural society, but then also you were living in very different accommodation, weren't you? Yes. We had a beautiful flat in Singapore. In fact, many, many years later, when through work, um, because before becoming a translator, I worked in tourism marketing for many years, and, and I was lucky enough to be dispatched to Singapore for work. And I, uh, I, uh, I somewhat anxiously 
you know, trying to trace where my parents and I had had, had lived. And I found it. And you're absolutely right, Emma. It was a very, very different set of circumstances. It was a very spacious flat um, in what is now a very um, prosperous part of, of Singapore. And uh, and my mum had an ayah, so um, basically a nanny who, who looked after me. Um, so there was um, a lot of support support climate wise because you know your life is more outdoor in a warmer climate there was support socially because of the community that we lived in there was support practically from having assistance with with child care um and because my mum wasn't working you know so she was at home and could give me her full attention and I think that became something that she'd reflected on in later life when my sister was born about the different challenges of bringing me up in Singapore and having to bring my sister up um, in Edinburgh without all of those extra support mechanisms. Can I just ask, how old were you and your sister when your mum, you know, sort of, because she'd have had to study and then she'd have had to, and then she'd have embarked upon her career. So how how old were, were you and your sister at the point where she started to study and to work towards becoming a teacher? So my my sister was born in May of 1969. So that would have been, just the spring or slash summer before she would have taken up her um, postgraduate um, course at Murray House College. So my sister was just a few months, three or four months old when she started at, at Murray House. And that's the point I was making was I think that in later life she felt, if not regret, just um, I think she she re she she reanalyzed priorities in life in terms of what is really important. But when when you are that that generation of immigrants um, to a to a new country, you're very anxious that you want to make your mark. You don't want to be seen as somebody who is who's just landed there and and you know you, you are there because you want to forge a career for yourself and also because you have pride that you are an educated person and you want to contribute something to 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 this new world that you've arrived in. And education had always been a priority. For my parents, um, so I think I think that decision to combine having a young family and and studying was a brave one. Um, you know whether it was the um, yeah whether whether with hindsight it was you know um, a decision that kind of worked out practically is 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 a different issue. But hindsight is is a wonderful thing. Yeah. So my sister was a few months, and I was I was preschool. So I would have been around about or something like that. I, I just have to ask because of being a working mother myself. So how did your mum manage that? Because, you know, you know, so how did she, um, how did she manage to find, who did she find to look after you and support her and help her? So with, <laughs> it's it's hard to kind of reconstruct because I was obviously just four at the time. So I, I only have my own memories and then, and then what I've picked up in the years since then. I think it was a combination of several things. I think there was, um, I think between them, because my my dad um, would often be the one who picked me up from nursery. Um, I know that my mum also picked me up from nursery many times because I have memories of that happening. And and as a child watching through the window to see who was going to be outside, whether it was my mum or my dad who'd come to pick me up. Um, and, you know, that that old thing where you're sitting at your desk, but you're also, and you're also just trying to, to 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 stand up a wee bit just to peer, just to poke your your eyes through the window to see who's outside. Um, so I think they juggled it between themselves. I think there was also childcare involved. 
and that's really an important point, and I'm glad you've raised it because the structures. I know we, I know we're always critical of the structures in place for childcare and provision, but just imagine that today is is, you know, um, a very different world from the early 1970s when there wasn't, you know, a lot of the structures that we take for granted were not in place then. So statutory childcare, the ability to have wraparound care, all of the things that parents, as I've said, despite the criticism that we always have, it's the environment is so much better now for working professionals than it was in the 1970s. And, and I, I can say that both through my own memories of being a child, but also through through listening to my parents talking about the challenges in the year in the years afterwards. So the so the <coughs> The, the short answer to my to your question really is it was really tough and and it wasn't easy, but somehow they found a way through, and I think that's where my mom's regret came about the fact that she spent perhaps less time with my sister growing up than she was able to spend with me in in Singapore, um, and I don't want to harp on about it. It's just I know that it was something that you know was in her thoughts. It was fascinating to read about uh, her experience in the classroom. Um, you described that the, the the exploration of issues such as race, equality, diversity uh, in classrooms and even in her classroom in the early 1970s was incidental. You've also said that uh, multicultural education at the time, sort of shows that even existed, uh, was, was was pretty much unknown. And the resources were, I think the term used were, terms used were depressingly monocultural and sometimes borderline racist. So. With this sort of 50 years of hindsight now, how would you say that, could you talk about the your mum's approach to teaching issues like this and how, and the context she worked within and how that maybe differs with what might be the norm today or how people uh, see these issues today? You're, you're, you're quite correct in saying that it was a very monocultural environment that my mum stepped into. So in, in those days... Um, as I've said, there were very few people of colour around, and that was true of the of, of the of of communities in general, but but therefore de facto true of education. So she was um when when she entered um the teaching environment, she was the only teacher of colour at that time. She was probably one of the very earliest. We know that there were there were other predominantly women around. Um, in in the late 1960s, in the early 1970s, and certainly over in the West in Glasgow, there were uh, other pioneers like my mum who'd started in in the early to mid 60s. So, it it was it, it was if you like the nascent period of of BAME educators entering the profession. So the, the, there was monoculturalism in terms of who was who was doing the teaching. There was monoculturalism in terms of the the pupil cohort. So if I take my mum's experience when she first started teaching in, in Edinburgh, um, just about all of the pupils that she taught were, were white, except for there was one pupil um, that she did have who was um, of South Asian origin. Um, and then there was monoculturalism in terms of teaching materials and resources and just general, just the general ether around you, if you like. So... I have very clear memories of the books because she would often use some of her classroom materials. Um, and I resented this hugely to, to help with my education. So I was, I can remember coming home from school and I would have to do my school homework. And then I would have to do extra work that she was setting me just because she was teacher and felt it was good for me. And and I know I resented at the time because I wanted to be watching the 
early or going out and playing and, and doing all sorts of other stuff. And um, but I, I'm I'm very grateful. I'm very grateful to her now for having done that because um, I suppose a lot of the going back to your point about the kinds of they were very traditional teaching materials, mm-hmm. but they 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 stood me in good stead because I, you know a lot of core things were drummed into me. I suppose in a way that I I wish they were still being drummed in, in, into pupils, but that you know going on for a long debate about the nature of education, but it was a very traditional setup. And I remember that a lot of the geography books in particular, this is where it was most obvious. And I wish I'd kept some of them because they were curious beasts, curious beasts indeed. They were, they had, um, <laughs> inevitably the covers would be of, um, of a black child um, standing in the foreground. And I remember this because so many of the covers were the same. There would be, a, so you'd have, you know, geography textbook on the cover, you'd have a black child in the foreground. And then you'd have basically a jungle in the, in the background and you'd have a mud hut. And that was that was kind of the shorthand for, it was the shorthand for Africa and kind of Asia and just everything that was kind of, you know, west of, of Europe, sorry, yeah, east of Europe. It was very, um, very odd. And I remember being taught in my own school using similar textbooks and feeling... <sighs> Somewhat, somewhat dejected that that you know we would we would have lessons where you talk about um, I don't know grain farming in the Midwest or um, you know beetroot farming in East Anglia and then you'd move to India and it was just a story that was riddled with poverty and and a sense of lack of culture and I felt even at that early age I thought something was kind of wrong but obviously I wasn't sophisticated enough to put my my finger on it, but I, I'll always remember that that word mud huts. It just took up, stood up all the time. That geography textbooks literally said that all the people lived in mud huts in these in these countries. Um, and if you think about it now, it's it's just it's just weird. Mm-hmm. Um, but I will caveat that by saying no one no one is under any illusions that a lot of the developing world, as was as is, has poverty. Of course, it does. People do live in villages, and that is the truth. But just relentlessly present that as being the single facet that makes up some of the richest cultures on the planet, I think is is problematic. It's problematic for everyone in terms of the impression that it creates of, you know, 60%, 70% of the globe, but it's also problematic in terms of in terms of the child, because it's it affects their sense of self-worth and self-esteem. And, and I think these are all things that I've only kind of perhaps come to grips with, you know, in, in, in recent years, perhaps through my mum's work. She she was canny, though, so she was very clever and, and she could see what was going on even in those early years. And I think she often used them as a springboard to developing her lessons into far more inclusive and um, um, you know, broad-ranging representations of other cultures. I have talked to a lot of her former pupils in the months since she died, and um, they often talk about the fact that in those days there was a program on TV called The Generation Game, um, and she would get them to do um, a mock generation game in the class, and one of the one of the tasks was to tie a sari, and um, they literally, again, got themselves tied up in knots. Um, 
And then we obviously, you know, education moved on from, from the Sari days, which was kind of more multiculturalism into anti-racism. But, but at that stage, I think in the 1970s, it was important that she did those kinds of things. I think it's really interesting. One of the things that um, you had said in your piece as well was about that your mum wore her sari to school, but she was brightly dressed and you had the memory of her putting on her red lipstick. You know, I I mean, she must have cut quite the figure when she walked into the, you know, sort of school and into the and into the classroom. Was that a very conscious choice? Because she could have decided to pop on like a dress, you know, like, a, a, you know, to pop on a suit or, you know, whatever it was that the, the other teachers, the other female teachers were wearing. So did you feel that was a very conscious choice on her part? That's a really interesting question. And at one level, it might seem like a trivial and almost, you know, frivolous question about, about what you wear. But again, over the last few months, I, I've realised that it's actually quite, quite an important question. Um, and I think it's to do, and I think it's far more complex than it might appear. So at the basis level, of course, my mum was used to wearing a certain kind of garment. So she'd grown up wearing, um, so in the Indian subcontinent, it's it, you kind of have this migratory journey where as a child you wear, if, if, if you're a girl, you kind of start wearing what's called the salvar kameez. The salvar kameez is baggy trousers and tunic that fits over the top, which has been adopted as Western dress as well recently. So it's it's nothing it's nothing new nowadays, but in those days, it would have been perceived as something different. So you would start with that, and then you'd, you'd progress to what is quite a difficult garment when that's the sari, because it to wear a sari well, you need to have it to tie it properly, and it requires a certain a demeanor and the grace to carry it off. It's not an easy garment to carry off. I'm always full of awe at stewardess um, cabin crew on Air India who wear the wear the sari because they they carry it off with such effortless you know elegance while balancing trays of coffee and everything else and I think how are you doing that you know is it like pinned down in like 50 different places so 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 that migration from the Savar Kameez to the sari would have been what my mum had been used to so she wouldn't really have been used to wearing anything else and when I look at pictures of her in um, both Madras and Singapore um, She's wearing one or the other, you know, um, either a sari or a Um, When she came to Britain, I suppose she obviously brought that with her because she'd never worn jeans and a blouse or a top and jeans or whatever. Um, and when it came to teaching, this is really interesting. So I, I do have pictures from the 70s where she's at home and I can see that in the home she is wearing, um, I guess you'd call them slacks or trousers, and she's wearing a top. So she's wearing... Western dress. So she must have at some point decided, well, this is actually quite a good practical thing for just doing the hoovering and what have you. Um, but when she went to school, um, she certainly when she was teaching, I think pretty much without exception, she wore the sari. And I think I think it would have been a combination of what I've just said, but that's what she was used to. I think probably if you come from India, it's what's accepted as being smart, just as if you go to an interview in the UK, you would go in a suit. So if you go to an interview for a job in India and you're a woman, then you would wear a sari probably, or you might wear a Western suit nowadays. It depends on the company you're being interviewed by. Um, so I think, it, I think it was a combination of what she was comfortable with. But I think she was also making a statement to say, look, this is me. And, and and this is what I represent, and this is my culture. So basically, you know, um, take me as I am. But but this is what what I, what I represent. Um, 
And I do remember, you know, the lipstick, because I think as a child, you're always curious about your parents and what they're doing. And I, this has stayed with me was, you know, um, her in front of the mirror and, you know, the puckering of the lips just to check that your lipstick is, you know, dead spot on. And um, still so has always stayed with me. And uh, she was a very, very stylish person. And I, again, hindsight just has made me realize that because not there is no photograph where she is not immaculately dressed. Um, and I think just fast forwarding to her later life and, you know, the lion's share of her career, which was, you know, fighting for race equality at strategic level. I think I think she then took that air, those early years and wearing that sari to the next level where she was very conscious, certainly in the in the late 70s, early 80s. Politically, it was a very male dominated world that she operated in. And I think she was very clever and astute to, to use her look to to gain um, um, profile, to be noticed, and by dint of being noticed then to fight for the causes that she was felt were important. I just wanted to go back to um, the, the representations of other cultures and countries that uh, peoples in the early 1970s might have experienced. And obviously you've talked about how they um, be quite tokenistic, misleading, um, offensive even. How, what did, did your mum encounter, your mum obviously tried to present a far more sophisticated uh, picture of the world. Did she encounter much in the way of resistance to that? It's it's hard now with with you know having you know half a century has elapsed since then to know um, what what level of resistance um, she encountered. She she may have done so and not spoken about it openly at home. I know anecdotally, having talked to my father, that that there was prejudice because he certainly encountered it in an educational environment too. And I think one of the reasons that he left. Well, he left teaching um, relatively early was in part due to that that feeling of lack of progression due to due to who he was. Um, and I think that um, I, I don't think it's 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 a stretch to say that perhaps some of that was also encountered by my mum within her own profession. Um, I know there were often days from memory where. Um, she would come home feeling a little upset about something. And, and that I think is when um, I first realized that having a support network outside of your, of your work environment of your peers is really important. I think those were, the, those were the days when we first forged links with a very small group of other families in Scotland, in Edinburgh, um, who could provide some reassurance. Um, so I think, I, think, I think the answer is yes, that there was prejudice. But I think a bit like me being at school at the same time, because I started primary one at the same time that she began teaching, that some of the prejudice and racism that we encountered, when you're not used to it, it's quite hard to know how to how to package it in your mind and then where to take that package. Because a bit like childcare, the world has moved on. And, and nowadays, there are any number of ways in which some of those issues can be flagged up and 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 tackled um but i have to say i guess i would use the word primitive those were quite primitive days in terms of um um of one's rights and and one's um um you know the support mechanism that was offered to you um whether you were a pupil or 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 a teacher 
your mum had what you've said was a unique rapport with people who felt excluded in some way or who needed extra support. Can you just, you know, sort of take us through why um, you think that the bonds with those pupils were so strong? I think that when you when you're displaced and when you might be displaced voluntarily or you're displaced because you've decided to to migrate to to another culture, another place to live and, and work and and make a future and a career for yourselves. I think that brings with it, obviously, a lot of challenges, challenges to do with isolation, of being different, of being singled out. And I think by dint of the fact that my mum had gone through that displacement and gone through it, I suppose, in quite a dramatic way, twice, first with the partition of India. Um, she was 10 when, when India was divided. So that, that's quite an impressionable age for a family to up, uproot itself completely and to leave your home and to leave everything behind, um, which is why events over the last few days in Afghanistan have struck a chord with me, because I can completely understand what 1947 would have been like to move, you know, to 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 what was a foreign land. It was it was India, but it was a new India that not, no one had ever experienced before. So there was that upheaval in her life. And then there was the upheaval moving from Asia, the East, to the UK. I think those experiences probably gave her the kind of empathy and understanding of what it's like to be new or indeed to be the target of, of um of prejudice um, and and just being singled out, and that I think probably is that meant that when when there were pupils in her class, there were, there was one pupil I know who who was of American origin in her class, and I know that uh, I chatted to him actually last year about this, and and he was he was hugely grateful that the fact that my mum had the understanding meant that his his acceptance into the classroom and and the feeling that he had a champion for him at school, um, it was really important that, that she was there. And I think he has certainly said that that made that experience of being a stranger um, easier, that there was somebody who understood and could actually um, fight your corner if, if, if it came to it. I, and I think all of those things, um, if you've lived through something, I think it makes your understanding of someone in the same position, um, you know, it, it, it gives you more insight. I wondered if you had if you had a favourite story of your your mum's time as a teacher or something that's really really sums her up, perhaps. The um, I remember, I remember that when she was teaching, um, would have been about 1971, 70, I don't know what year it was, but there was. There was a huge wave of Egyptomania in the UK because the treasures of Tutankhamun came to Britain. And this, from my childhood, this stands out because I was I was slightly obsessed with the Egyptians as a child um, um, because we did it as a project at school. That's a whole other issue. But it was, you know, one of the, the customary things that you did at, at school. And I remember being fascinated by this. And, um, and my mom at the same time was also teaching um, ancient Egypt. As as one does uh, from her textbooks, um, and and I was I probably really wanted to go and see the exhibition in London, but of course I was only four or five or something like that. And I remember sitting in my own classroom, so not in my mum's school, a different school, and just doing my work quietly. I think it was maths. I remember because in those days you had 
know if you know what these things are, but they, they were called um, cuneiform rods, I think they were called. They were like, do you know what these are? They're, they're like... They're 10 blocks. They're, they're 10 blocks in uh, yes. rod. Yeah, so you use them to help you with counting, don't you? And then sometimes you get the tens and you get the units and, and you use them, yeah. Yeah, and, and the, the units was the one and they were always the smallest. They were white. Um, and the whites were always the one that went missing in your in the box of rods. So I remember I was doing rods. I was doing rods. It's a funny thing. It's been so long since I've said that phrase. I was doing my rods and um, the door of the classroom opened and in walked my mum. And, and my suddenly went a bit dizzy thinking, oh, this is all wrong. Why is she here? And, you know, you know, that kind of childhood slight cringe, even at five, you slightly cringe, slightly think, oh, what the hell is going on now? Um, and she walked up to the teacher and they'd obviously planned it. And then my mum had her bag. She always used to have quite a quite a sturdy, sensible shopping bag with her. I don't know what she carried around, but she had quite a, you know, something you could do your groceries with if you wanted to, I suppose. And she set it on the desk and out of the bag, she plucked, and I'll never forget this, she plucked, there were little um, in gold um, facsimiles of the death mask of Tutankhamun and the very famous bust of Queen Nefertiti. She plucked them out. And the teacher then said, oh, Mrs. Lal is here and she's brought some uh, examples of the stuff, you know, of, of, the, of the pharaoh that we were studying in, in, in class. And then she made the class pass some around. And I remember my sense of, of pride that, that actually, you know, we were engaged with this story too. And, you know, it wasn't just something in a textbook, but my mum knew about this stuff. And I think, I think it gave me a lift the fact that you know um that you know we, that i had i had some claim on 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 knowledge and 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 being part of of the culture that we were you know were studying in in class i think she'd actually got them from a parent in her own school and had decided that um she would just share them with with our class but that that's always stuck out as a memory um it's a very faint memory but i remember i remember that that the um just the feeling of elation, you know, cringe, first, firstly cringing and then turning into elation that this was something really interesting. And obviously, we, we, we've talked quite a bit there about your, your mum as a teacher and about her journey to, to becoming a teacher, but um, and, and you've alluded to this a little bit already, but could you just tell us um, a bit more about the other roles that your mum took on during her career? When she um, um, gave up teaching, partly because of um, some of the very complex issues to do with childcare um, and, and um, just general circumstances for families at, the, at that time. And, and it's, you know, it, for, for two parents to be working with very young children, it's, it's a hugely, um, many sacrifices have to be made. And I think, I think there came a point at which those sacrifices were no longer tenable. So she left teaching and she moved initially into um, sort of voluntary work with, with, with women. She was approached by the, uh, the YWCA to work with what by then had become a growing community of, of minority um, groups in the city. Um, a lot of minority women needed support. And that's where my mum entered the, the grassroots community work um, uh, initially working very closely with the Indian community, but then expanding to work with 
the Chinese, Bangladeshi, and the Pakistani communities um, as well. That led to, um, I think, a very important uh, you know, part of her life when she was involved in, in, in very core grassroots uh, engagement with minority communities, predominantly in, in the Leith, uh, in Leith, uh, in that part of the city, um, and understanding a little bit about experiences of isolation, of being, um, of feeling left out. And she, I think she, she probably then was in the best position to understand those experiences, having herself been through that by that point, almost, you know, eight to eight years to a decade earlier. Um, and then from there, she went on to, um, I think, perhaps her most crucial role, and that was with, with the Race Equality Council, um, where she, uh, I think, was able to distill a lot of the learnings gained from migration, from early experiences of education and, and multiculturalism or lack thereof, and um, assimilation and experiences of minority communities into really leading a lot of the crusades through the 1970s and 80s for equality at many levels. Equality um, in terms of statutory provision, whether that be social work or um, people in hospitals, or um, she did a lot of work in prison because I remember her saying that if you were a prisoner but from a minority group, there was, there was no reason why you should be deprived of the rights that everybody else would have to a diet that was suitable for your religion, to having books and reading material in your own language, all of those things. Um, she worked very closely with the immigration and nationality um, departments um, and also with the police. Um, she was never shy at that stage to stand up for what she believed in, never shy. Um, that got her into trouble, you know, um, um, when you put yourself in the limelight and you you stand up for a cause because you believe it is right, um, you become a target. And as I've said, you know, it was a very masculine world that she operated in. She would often walk into meetings where it was just, you know, a table full of men in suits, white men in suits. Um, and I, I admire her for that. I admire her even more for that now than I suppose when it was actually happening, because I, I understand more about what those challenges um, are like. That was also the era, I suppose, when, you know, Mrs. Thatcher had come to power in, what, 79? So, um, you know, the, the, I suppose she perhaps had some rural models in terms of, of, of women, but very few, very, very few. Why do you think she was so driven? Because, I mean, I, I suppose that um, she could have just decided to you know, sort of um, largely, um, you know, sort of be a stay-at-home mother um, and, you know, and, and that would have certainly kept her busy, <laughs> you know. Um, so, you know, why do you think that, that she had that, that drive to do, to do all of that? That's a really good question. I, th I think a lot of it stems back to her upbringing. So within her own family, she was... Um, she was always a very driven individual. She was the youngest of eight brothers and sisters, and perhaps being the youngest of eight means that you you feel more conscious of having to forge a place for yourselves amongst your peers. She was very close to my my maternal grandfather, um, as I mentioned, who was very prominent um, figure in the in the fight for um, for freedom from from British rule and his views on education and especially on. Um, the importance of education for women probably stayed with her throughout her life. So 
that that feeling that women um, deserve a place just like anybody else and and have rights I suppose was 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 a core part of her of her being I think also the fact of being um, an immigrant you and I've had the same that you you almost feel as if you have to do 150 percent in in order to lay stake to your rightful place which wouldn't be the case if you weren't um a second generation immigrant or you weren't a person of color um i also think it was her personality so you know it, there are certain individuals who and my mum was one of many like her who who have a, an understanding of of what is right and what needs to be done and and she wasn't one to stand around and let things happen um, without at least making an effort for, the, for, for things to change for, for the better. She was also somebody who had a great deal of empathy. So she would sit down with you, um, and I've seen this time and time again, and, and, and have a chat. And you would think that you were just having a social chat. But in fact, what was happening was that, that she was... She was trying to get to grips with with what made you tick and what were the issues that perhaps were making life difficult for you. Um, and I saw this especially when it came to refugees and asylum seekers. She was very quick at understanding what kind of support they needed. Sometimes it was quite simple in terms of well, they needed help with filling in a form, or um, they needed some you know support with English language teaching. Um, but sometimes I knew that she was also at the same time keeping an eye on the rest of the family and saying actually. You know, your daughter, she, you know, she's bright. She could do with, you know, not just doing her O grades, but going on to hires. Have you thought about that? And I, that's something that I, I always remember was, was a family that she became quite attached to who were, you know, um, very kind of marginalized. And I remember her talking to their youngest daughter, who perhaps was a little bit shy and saying, you know, you could go on and and, and do something because I think you're quite talented. And um and that wee girl is now um, quite a prominent counsellor in in, um, in East Lothian. So I remember that as being just an example of, of how she made a difference. Um, I think she was driven. Um, but I think she was driven because she felt that there was a job that needed to be done. And if she didn't do it, then, you know, then who would? Um, and, and, you know, someone's got to roll up their sleeves. And she didn't mind that she got flack sometimes because she did get flack. Of course she got flack. She didn't mind that because she said, you know, it simply means someone's taking notice and that's better than not being noticed at all. And what did she think about the progress or indeed the lack of it made over the past 50 years? I think on, on the level of race, equality and diversity, she was enormously gratified that a lot of things that she fought for in the early days became statutory and I know that one of the areas that she was particularly keen on was the relationship between the police force and minority communities and she was incredibly proud of some of the things that she pretty much began but then became ingrained and it's so long now that people have forgotten how this how these things came about but things like the monitoring of um of racist incidents or racial attacks, the the definition of what constitutes a racial attack. And from a school's perspective, the monitoring of racist bullying in the school play playground, all of those were issues that she championed in those early days. And more or less, I think we would agree, have become part of 
at least the theory or the legislation or the um, the guidelines that, that that schools now have in terms of dealing with issues around racism. She wasn't the only one, but I know that in, in her part of the world, she was an instigator of, of that discussion and making things happen. So I think she was very pleased about that. I think, I think she was equally um, perturbed when she saw that, you know, some of the things that um, perhaps should have made progress hadn't. Um, and I think that, you know, as successive governments came and went and the policies around um, immigration and asylum changed according to the vagaries of, you know, the, the political complexion of who was in power, that often exasperated her. Um, and I think she was often, um, I think she was, the, the area that, that often bemused her the most was the lack of progress in the school environment in terms of the core curriculum where she felt that um, there was no blame attached in her mind. It was simply she felt that perhaps because resources were easily available to tackle certain parts of, of, um, um, of, of the world and, and world cultures, that perhaps progress that could have been made hadn't been. And, and that was what I referred to earlier in terms of, you know, the that staple diet of Egyptians, Vikings, Romans, Victorians, which we've all grown up with. I grew up with it. And my, my niece, yes, pretty much half a century later, went to school and went through the same diet, which was great because I could tell I could help her with all of that. But, but you know, we've, we haven't. Yeah, we, we haven't, I think. And I'm going out on a limb here. We haven't tackled that leap into saying, well, actually, let this term, let's tackle ancient China or let's tackle you know the benin civilization of, of africa we we haven't made that leap and if we can do something as complex as the egyptians at primary school and we do and it's a complex society then i would argue that you know ancient china is probably just as just as plausible a topic for discussion so i think i think that bemused her slightly and she would always look at that with a slightly ironic gaze but you know she was she never took herself very seriously. And that I think was what kept her going was the ability to laugh at herself and say, well, I had a go, there they go, whatever. You know, I, I, I tried, I tried. And uh, I think that that sense of, of being able, you know, to look at herself and say, yeah, I'm just one person in, in, in the wheel here, but, you know, I've done my bit. I think that kept her going as well. I think we were going to ask you about... Um... As some of your mum's old pupils been in touch with you, sort of, uh, you have um, you, you have uh, referred to some of those already. So, unless there's anything other around that you'd want to, to speak about, uh, I was going to ask you about um, something that's very topical, which is uh, the campaign to have a new school in Edinburgh named after your mum. I wondered if you could uh, tell us a bit about that. Of course, the um, the um, the part of Edinburgh where my mum began to teach, which is which is South Edinburgh predominantly Morningside is having a, um, and this is quite quite exciting, a new school being built there. This has been long mooted and I'm so glad to see that, you know, new provision is now coming up to deal with um, the increased pressure on, on the schools in South Edinburgh. And uh, this was an idea that began last year in the wake of her passing that a nice way to mark her legacy would be to name um, this new school after her. And uh, um, just to be clear, not, not just on the basis of, 
of the of the time that she spent as a teacher because that was that was the smaller part of a much longer arc so let's be clear about this the the proposal was based on the on the on the holistic um contribution that she made um to to the city of edinburgh and to scotland in terms of diversity and race and women's issues um so i felt that that would be um Quite an interesting thing to explore, um, not least in 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 the light of so many things that have crossed our horizon in the last year or two years. So Me Too and Black Lives Matter, and um, as you'll be aware, the um, the the allegations of racism at some Edinburgh schools and the report that was produced. And um, there is a climate in which I think there's a feeling that we need to. Uh, to recognise more of the contribution that Bain communities have made to Scotland uh, and and of women as well. And um, in parallel, there has also been quite quite an involved debate around the legacy of colonialism and slavery in the city of Edinburgh, especially to do with um, Henry Dundas and the Melville Monument and all of these Mm -hmm. things. So it was against that, that, that backdrop that I felt this might be an interesting uh, proposal. So, um, um, I've I've been very active in terms of engaging with the local community about telling Saroja's story, um, and that's been wonderful. It's been a, a hugely uplifting opportunity to to tell her story because you know with the passing of time, stories get forgotten. And I think that's probably one of the other reasons for embarking on this is 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 keeping stories alive, keeping that narrative going. And uh, I thought it would be lovely, you know, and in a hundred years' time, when none of us are here, and and you know, if, if the school were to be named after, and somebody, you know, a child pipes up and says, "Well, why is this school called Sirojla Primary?" and I would love a teacher to say, "Ah, that's a really good question. Let me tell you a story." And I think, I think that "Let me tell you a story" would be, in many ways, the greatest legacy of all, because it just means that 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 work continues, and it continues to inspire future generations to say, do you know what? It doesn't matter who you are. You can do great stuff and, and, and you can make a difference. She often used to say to me that when she did stuff, it wasn't for her. She would then metaphorically point a finger over her shoulder and say, do you know, I'm doing this for the queue behind me, the people who can't speak, the people who can't vocalize their thoughts, the people who are, who are eloquent enough to make the case. I am here and I will make the case. So someone has to be a figurehead but you know, it's the queue behind me for whom I speak. And I think my campaign for the school is also about the queue behind her. She may be the, um, the name that I'm positing, but behind that lies a whole lot more to do with a feeling of belonging, of being proud to be who you are, and about setting a precedent for future generations. And this precious little named after women in the city of Edinburgh, so, I just think it would be the right thing to do if it happens. Obviously, you, you, you've spoken there about it being a, a, an overwhelmingly positive experience to get to sort of share your mum's story so widely. But I know that you have had some troubling reactions. Do you want to speak about that and tell us a little bit about that? I think whenever you put yourself into the public arena, um, as I have done with my mum's story, um, it's inevitable that you will encounter um 
opposition and, and, and generate friction. And that's par for the course. I, I absolutely understand that. So that, that is true of, of any walk of life, uh, irrespective of whether race or diversity is involved. I think, I think the stakes are just higher when you have a story which is to do with diversity and equality, because like it or not, it, it provokes or it engenders um, um, views which are polarizing. Um, and, and that can be difficult to deal with, but it's it, it's par for the course. And I suppose I suppose what's been interesting for me and enriching for me is that it's enabled me in many ways to become closer to Saroj because I suppose I now have at first hand, not once removed, but at first hand, a far better comprehension of 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 where um of, of how antagonism and antipathy um, develop, um, of strategies to counteract that, of strategies to assert oneself despite this, um, and of strategies to avoid one thinking that, you know, um, that you were wrong to embark on this in the first place. Because I think, you know, you, you have to develop a strength, a strength of character and strength of mind to, to believe in what you're doing and to carry on regardless. So I'm not... I'm not surprised, is, like, is what I'm trying to say, because I think these things are polarizing and understandably polarizing. Any change is polarizing. But without people like me and Saroj before me and people before her and people who will come long after me, change won't happen. Change, change requires people to, to say, actually, why don't we do something different? And I'm, I'm hugely proud of everything I've achieved. I'm very, very... I'm, I'm very, very pleased for, um, I'm, I'm pleased that I've had so much support um, and I'm hugely, hugely moved by some of the testimonies I've had because as a result of the campaign, people who I never knew, but who knew Saroj have come forward and said, oh, but I knew Saroj. And I'm thinking, well, I, I never knew that this happened. And people will say, yes, but we went to this conference together and in the train there, we had this discussion about you know, we should set up a group for old people. And as a result of that, that's why this group exists. And, you know, all of these little gems have come up. And I I didn't know any of this stuff. You know, um, I met a neighbour on the corner who said that, you know, that my mum had been instrumental in her deciding to go on to study um, um, race um, as for a PhD or something like that. It was just, it was all really, really interesting stuff. So I... I'm hugely proud of everything I've achieved in her name. And to a certain degree, um, if it happens and the school's named after, that'd be wonderful. But if it doesn't, that's still fine because, you know, um, we've, we've told her story and, and that story will carry on. And, and any chance to tell her story, I think, is, is not just about me, but it's about the listener too. I, I would like people listening to understand that there are people who have gone before, people on whose shoulders we collectively stand, but you too can be, become a new set of, sh of, of shoulders for other people to stand on. We're, we're, we're in that kind of, she used many metaphors. She used the metaphor of passing the baton from one generation to the next. People like Rowena Arshad have described mum as being, you know, um, a giant on whose shoulders we stand in the field of racism nowadays. And I think if you don't tell those stories, then you have no way of, of, inspiring the next set of, sh set of shoulders because, you know, um, this is a long continuum and we need to carry on the fight. 
And just finally, looking to the future of education and the world beyond it, what do you think would have given Saroj hope? I think that a lot of the um, a lot of the debate that is being so openly aired now about diversity and equality, she saw some of that um, before she passed away. And I think I think that gave her a huge encouragement that what was once quite a niche a niche, a niche um, area of you know, very limited to kind of those within, uh, let's say, the race equality field. I think the fact, the, the the mainstreaming, if you like, of diversity and equality within the sphere of education for her, I think, was the biggest development that she felt, you know, augured well for the future. The fact that whether it was with the Scottish Parliament or the Scottish Government or um, um, a lot of the work that's being done to increase the number of BAME teachers in Scottish schools. In fact, that was the, the group chaired by Rowena Arshad. I think a lot of that work gave her huge hope. And she was under no illusion. These things take time. It's like turning a tanker around. It doesn't happen overnight. But she, but she felt very pleased to see these things happening and also very felt very pleased that she was part of that story, You know that she was one of many others like her along the way who've got us to... to um, to this point. It's been absolutely wonderful having you on today. Thanks for sharing so many of your own thoughts and so many fascinating details and insight into your, your mum's life. Thanks again and all, all the very best for the future. And thank you so much for sharing Saroj's story. That was fascinating. Thank you. Thanks, Henry. And thank you, Emma. Lovely to meet you both.